0: From Desi Bio Consulting, I'm Stefan Budel and today we have a really fun conversation with my friend, Dr. Chris Mason. Chris is a professor at Wild Cornell Medicine and he works on a battery of cool stuff, among them the NISA twin study, comparing genomic changes in the human body as a result of space travel and MetaSub, analyzing the metagenomic of subway and urban biomes. Chris has a new book out titled The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds and it's available now from MIT Press. We'll talk about how we envision humanity preparing to move beyond our home on Earth in the next few centuries and how that relates to precision medicine over the next few years. You'll also hear a little bit from my colleague and producer, Anthony Di Benedetti. So without further ado, we'll jump into our conversation with Dr. Mason. Chris, thanks so much for being here. Can you give us a quick overview of the book for people who might not be familiar with your work?
1: Yeah, my pleasure. And, and thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. So the, the book is really a treatise of, of hope and a series of dreams for humanity. It's, it's, it's that big. It's, I really, uh, hope that we can understand biology well enough that we can keep people safe for long duration space flight and even potentially engineer life, uh, you know, add things back in that have gone missing or, you know, do what we do for immunotherapies and have a better monitoring and treatment of cells that go awry. And we'll need all these tools basically to get, I think, beyond Mars and go to other eventually solar systems. So it's over 500 years. There's a lot in there. Uh, but basically it is a rich, detailed look at what happened if what we learned from other NASA missions like the twin study and what we're learning with other astronauts right now and engineering microbes, engineering human cells. Really uh, a look at the latest tools and technologies in genomics that enable an extraordinary application of medicine today, but also what will likely come in the near future. So it's, And at the end, I say that it's actually our duty to use these tools to better understand life, but also to protect life. That we are the only ones with awareness of life's fragility and extinction. And so it's actually why I propose actual duty for our species for the long term.
0: Nice. So tell us a little bit more about what do you think is going to be the role of these tools uh, in in helping us like make that that trip, uh, you know, across the the universe, or at least across
1: our galaxy. <laughs> at least, yeah, I, I guess I stopped in the galaxy. I could have, uh, We actually, there's a really cool map in there later in one of the figures of where all the known exoplanets that are close enough to Earth that we could probably at least get there and maybe survive, or at least uh, arrive and, and someday survive there. So what's uh-huh. called the Earth Similarity Index. And so I think... I think what's extraordinary is if you just kind of first jump back like 25 years ago, we had, you know, one genome that had been sequenced, we had no human genome, we had, you know, no exoplanets really discovered there there was maybe one with little evidence. But now we have, you know, 1000s and 1000s of genomes, hundreds of 1000s and millions of genes identified the genetic catalog of evolutions toolkit. And we also have 1000s and 1000s of exoplanets. So we have places that we can actually now go to and potentially survive. And I think the tools, of sequencing the tools of, of genome synthesis and the, and the ability to do cellular engineering will enable essentially this extraordinary new future uh, that'll help us survive on other planets. But that's already happened here. We can think of you know engineering T-cells that have like CAR T therapies, where you basically tweak the genome of a cell to be therapeutic. Uh, that's one of the big points I make in the book is that a lot of these ideas seem like science fiction, like engineering or tweaking life to survive on another planet. But we're already modifying and tweaking life here therapeutically because we want to, you know, avoid dying of cancer. So this – everything in the book is based on things we know today. I, I require not a single technological leap from anything that doesn't exist already. So I think it is um, – I think it's really exciting because the tools that help us, you know, eke past disease are the ones that are going to help us survive even when the environment gets harsher.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, it's interesting. I think there are a number of examples of uh, NASA developed technologies that actually have a positive impact on society, right? Is there something that you can foresee will be the case uh, as we take this trip, uh, you know, let's say like, uh, you know, like to Jupiter or one of the, one of these like planets, uh, where something that we're going to have to develop on that trip will will have a role in in today's healthcare. Do you, do you predict that's going to be the care the case?
1: I think so. So, you know, a lot of them will be tools. Some of them are just simple tools that we already developed. With one of the missions I talk about in the book, is is sequencing in space, doing rapid diagnostics, for example, uh, with a minion sequencer. You can do really sequencing anywhere. And actually, this is something that's been established for seven, eight years, even before we started doing it in the space station. So, that, you know, some of them are just tools that let you build out a molecular characterization of anything, whether it's a weird growth on your skin or it's something that's in your mouth or something on the space station. <laughs> so, that we've shown, we know that that's possible. But I think looking forward, I think the tools will be, you know, things like Velcro, for example, that NASA, it's all over the space station. So you can stick things. We all use Velcro almost every day. A lot of laser technology was developed for NASA. A lot of other, you know, electronics were developed that work uh, in very small environments with limited power. So things that have helped our cell phones get better. But I think looking forward, one of the really interesting things is I detail a lot in the book of, you know, things that are in our genome that maybe we could reactivate. For example, being able to make your own vitamin C If you don't get enough vitamin C, you'll get scurvy. But a lot of other mammals uh, have the ability to make their own vitamin C, and we used to do it. If you look back in primate lineages, there's other primates that still do. It just got lost, and and multiple times it's been lost in lineages. For example, bats no longer make their own vitamin C because they get enough of it from their diet. It's the same thing that happens with us. We get enough in our diet with us, but there, you know, there's a lack of selective pressure, so you don't you don't need it in your genome, but the gene is still there. It's like a pseudogene. So one of the sections of the book, I talk about reactivating that gene or or we have to get nine of our essential amino acids from our diet. Otherwise, again, we'll die if we don't get them. But I think it's it's kind of unfair. Like these pathways to generate all 20 amino acids that we use exist in nature. Like why don't we actually put them in human cells? And so uh, engineering the genome to make that possible might be a little bit of a tall order like in the next at least few decades. But at least understanding those pathways and integrating them into yeast, for example, for production... Might not only help people in faraway missions, but also could help everything from bread production to, to beer to thinking about, you know, everything else we make with yeast and here on earth and therapeutics as well.
0: Yeah. Do you, do you envision that in some way, the fact that we have this mRNA vaccine that came online is maybe like a path through which people could actually start to edit their, you know, like genetic information, Uh, but just in a way that's more transitory, right?
1: I think it will start there first. I think a lot of the discussion is about genome engineering, uh, but it's also included in that is really cellular engineering, which includes the genome, the epigenome, where you can turn genes on and off, which I described at length in the book. The technologies for that, again, also only a few years old, but are extraordinary because you can turn on the genes for, say, radiation response only when you know there's a high radiation event. Or Mm -hmm. if, if if maybe you have enough food for a while... So it might be more energy efficient to just eat your food, but if you really do run into a a harsh situation, only then do you activate some of these other pathways potentially. So I think viewing the genome and the epigenome as these two distinct canvases on which you can sort of paint your function as you need it uh, is really uh, enabling a different view of of how you can uh, survive better, avoid disease, even treat disease. And then, of course, if you're going to a different planet, how you might hopefully be able to survive better there. So I think uh, and and RNA vaccines are one example where we – We'll just synthesize the essentially what are the the proteins that we want the body to make so that our immune system can recognize those epitopes and just make it easy, make it so. Uh, I mean, there's already a discussion of a multivalent vaccine for Moderna and Pfizer probably coming out in a few months or you know maybe every year. It's it's really this, this brave new world of let's synthesize what we need, train our immune our immune cells for what we need them to do, and eventually we could train other cells to do what we want them to do.
0: Can you tell us a bit about what is some of the the most interesting facts that, that you found as you were doing research for the book? Like, is there anything that jumps to to mind? I'm guessing you're to get that question quite a bit.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, actually, the research of the book was, um, I really got uh, There's a really strong thread of optimism for it because a, a lot of the papers that I've read over the years, I know that the technology has enabled extraordinarily leaps in precision medicine for finding, you know, treating cancers. It, it leaps in uh, engineering cells or even changing. Uh, I was really excited to read some of the ways you could uh, modify the rods and cones in the eyes and maybe enable even like night vision, Mm -hmm. but like what used to be kind of science fiction, but there's already proof of principle papers that have been published that I got to do a deep dive on. And then also, you know, lessons from tardigrades or elephants that have extra copies of P53 or like, you know, what are the different, again, like the the lessons of evolution are written in the DNA of all these species on earth. And we're just now starting to kind of like unearth uh, or discover all these sort of uh, genetic lessons that are in their DNA. Uh, So, that was kind of the fun part. The the saddest part of writing the book was in the last chapter where I describe what's going to happen probably in the next five billion years and then afterward. And that was actually the hardest chapter to write because I'm a humanist and I'm really excited and hopeful for humanity. But basically, it is a deep dive on everything of how the planet will likely end. And in my head, I'd always had that, you know, as a kid that we have, you know, five billion years before the earth is engulfed by the sun. We've got lots of time. It's five billion years. Mm -hmm. It's a long time. But then when I finished doing the research and updating some of the cosmology, is it's actually about a billion years until the sun's luminescence starts to boil the oceans. So uh, even if we've achieved perfect world peace and we have amazing technologies and medicine, if we're still here, that's the really the the end date is a, a billion years. We probably won't survive much past that. Maybe underground, maybe. But like it, it is, uh, I actually always in my head thought that humanity had could live at least like you know five billion years, but it became a you know one one fifth of that. So it's like t- thinking that your child might live to be a hundred, but then finding out one day. Uh, that's only going to be 20. So I had this sense of sadness. And I, my wife was asking me in the kitchen, like, why are you so sad? And I was like, I just thought we had more time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she said, Yeah, but it's still a billion years. I said, No, but it's less, a lot less time. So that was actually one thing that was disturbing in a way. But I... I still take great solace that we've got some time. Yeah.
0: And I, it's funny you mentioned that, like, also within a billion year, uh, I'm guessing that even within a million year, maybe we'll be able to develop something similar to this, uh, what do they call it, like the Dyson sphere, uh, something yeah, that you like, put around the sun to harvest the energy, right? And so there must be a way that by then, well, we'll, we'll, we'll find I a mean, way to yeah, solve that. I'm I am Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so much time. Uh, and we've done so much just in the last, you know, a few hundred years, let alone a thousand. So I think... Uh, I am very hopeful in that regard. And I'm, I'm also hoping it'll be, you know, coincident with technological change as social and economic uh, adjustments as well. And I describe a lot in the book, you know, this idea of taking any technology and putting it in the context of what's the social impact. If you alleviate your suffering, does it increase the, you know, essentially uh, burden on someone else for some reason? Or what's the broader impact? What's the cost of something? How do we have equitable distribution of, of resources and treatments whenever possible? And, and, you know, want to make sure that anything that we do is in the context of its broader impact rather than just for one person and one family.
0: It sounds like 500 years could be accelerated, right? And so that's, I know it's a question that uh, Peter Thiel asked in interviews. It's like, what, are your te- what is your 10-year plan and what would it take for you to do it in six months? Like, mm. what do you think it would take for us to implement these plans in 50 years? Is it positive? Is it just funding? Is there mm. anything else?
1: That's a great question. Actually, yeah, my 500-year plan is is really predicated on the fact that we'll continue about as we have, Uh, although what we have been doing is at a super exponential pace for most of science, actually. So, But even with that pace, some things are hard or are politically fraught or underfunded. If we really accelerated the funding and development on a lot of the ideas in the book, I think it could be done in 50 to 100 years, quite certainly. The best examples, look at what happened with COVID, when almost the entire world scientific community is focused on one problem. We rapidly learn fundamental facets of the disease. We learn about the sequence of the virus. We develop vaccines. You know, really only 14 months ago did we barely know this virus existed. And we already have a widely deployed vaccine where some countries are almost completely vaccinated. Like, it's extraordinary. And that's because everyone was focused on one thing. If we did that, if we just focused on one thing as a whole global scientific community, one per year, we'd probably solve in 20 years the majority of the big problems, right? So or at least we'd have make big progress, I'm sure.
0: It is my impression, as I, I would say, when I was like reading the book, that so, some of these uh, the, these aspects are actually going to get there earlier than you yeah. anticipated, but I, I might I be even so. more of an optimist than you are.
1: Yeah, me. yeah. Well, in the beginning, I talked about like when I wrote the first bullet point of like, 10, uh, 500 planets, do it in 10 phases, and I wrote these bullet points. on, a, on a, It's like many things started. It was a bar napkin and some beer, and I was just <laughs> writing some things down. And uh, I proposed that genome editing would require a lot more technological work, but that was in 2010 when CRISPR was just beginning... I mean, there was a lot of preliminary papers on it, but I couldn't have foreseen then how easy it would be to just, uh, you know, be doing variations of CRISPR at scale as well as epigenetic modifications. And so there uh, I was, I have been pleasantly surprised at how easy and fast that genome editing has, has come come of age. And so... I'm hoping I'll be proven wrong on all of it in terms of the time. I'd say. You
0: know the comment you made about uh, you know the COVID reminded me of something that I believe that Moderna and BioNTech actually never had a copy of the of the virus on their side, right? They just like bioinformatically essentially received the information that were able to develop the vaccine. Right. That actually makes me think that similarly, it wouldn't it mm. be easier mm. to just beam the information to make a human as opposed to beam the humans? Don't you think that'd be the case? That it could be the easier way to exit the galaxy?
1: It would. I actually have a section I call it a point-to-point biology or interplanetary directed evolution is where you, for example, say we see microbes on Mars or humans that have adapted on Mars, and it looks like they've evolved over several hundred years to be very distinct. And we kind of sequence them and understand genetically why that is microbially or for eukaryotes. Sequence it and then actually, but there were research limited on Mars, so you could actually send the data back to Earth, then synthesize the creature or the microbe uh, or maybe even the human, and then do further studies on Earth where you have a lot more resources and ability to understand it and then have basically a point-to-point virtuous cycle of transmitting the data of the genetic adaptations and the genetic substrates, and then doing further testing on both planets. So you actually, you know, continue to learn about how life is evolving in these very different environments, and then put that to good use, because you might find new antibiotics. It could be new peptides. It could be, you know, entirely new structures that let you survive on Mars better, but maybe it'll help us actually avoid cancer on Earth. You know, you just... Uh, I think as as evidenced by CRISPR, which was just found by like mining sequence data originally, if you just kind of start to look around at what life has done to solve problems, it's just this entire wide panoply uh, of, you know, really amazing tools right under our fingertips. And so uh, I think we'll see more of that, even if it's on other planets or a lot of it, probably. The three of us here, I think we're very you know interested in in the future and in, in technology and stuff. But, you know... Pl- there's plenty of people in the world who I think, you know, just don't have that natural inclination, but regardless, we, you know, would obviously still benefit from like the technology byproducts that come out of these types of endeavors. So, so I guess, you know, how do you make the case to somebody who just doesn't have that natural inclination towards, you know, preservation of the human species that, you know, there's going to be good things that come about in all kinds of facets from, from this type of endeavor. Yeah. It's a great question is that some people say, well, why, why bother? Some people who say, You know, humans are not that great, you know, we because this pollution, there's infighting, there's murder, there's crime. You know, what's so great about humans is what what people would say. Uh, And to that, I say there's a very easy answer is that the humans are, to our knowledge, the only species that have the capacity to understand extinction. And that and and that alone is enough for preservation, because only that kind of species can serve as the guardians, I think, uh, to protect other species, to preserve life as we know it. Like we are it, like this is it. So even if with all of our faults included, we still have the really amazing benefit that there's we are, to our knowledge, the only you know species in the universe that can do this. And you think about how ecosystems normally work. There's basically you know producers and there's consumers and there's decomposers. Like you remember that picture from your elementary Mm -hmm. school where it's the sun and there's snails and there's plants and there's decomposers and it's really just three kinds of species. And we always thought we're just one of those kinds of consumers is what humans are. But what I argue in the book and, and, you know, strenuously and feverishly believe is that we are very unique in a fourth kind of species that is distinct from everything else because we are aware of this, the frailty of life, the extinction possibility. And we're the only ones that can prevent it. Of course, of course, we can cause it too. We can totally screw it up. (laughs) Uh, but we're the only ones that can do either, right? You can, other species can invasive species, I guess, but the only ones that can consciously cause the extinction and certainly the only ones that can consciously, uh, prevent extinction. And even actually, eventually, if you have synthesis, you could actually, you know, create new life. It's it's very much, um, you know, like the creative aspect is also something that's unique to us. And so I think uh, even if you don't like anything about humans, just that we have that capacity and we have an ability to preserve life is unique in the entire universe. uh, And everyone has that ability to at least think about it and to plan ahead. So I think it's worth preserving.
0: Let's talk about spatial omics a bit. Uh, do you, what what can you tell us You so talk a bit about like uh, spe- you know extra high spatial resolution like to what extent do you think it's important to go subcellular? I mean the cell is the unit of life, right? So what do you need to go subcellular in terms of resolution?
1: This is a a great question of you know more resolution, higher throughput, more data. Everyone always presumes these are always you know, more is better. And in this case we're finally reaching I think below the fundamental unit of life the cell. But we don't know what we're going to find yet. I I would put it akin to taking telescopes and saying, well, we're going to find more stars and more planets. But, you know, will it matter? We're just going to find more of them. And and to some degree, that's true. We have found a lot more of them. But as I was describing, like in the book is... We now have habitable exoplanets. We didn't just find planets; we found ones that we could actually survive on. And I think the same thing is going to be true. I think for high-resolution spatial, you're going to get subcellular resolution of the endoplasmic reticulum. You think about what the Golgi's doing, where are the mitochondria moving, or when they're damaged, what are they doing? We'll have these weird measures, and we don't probably won't know what the majority of them will be like. The planets we found far away with a better telescope. We, most of them will probably be just oh, okay. We just want other planets. But I'm sure we'll find new signatures, new indicators of disease or stress uh, or progression or resistance to different treatments that we just couldn't see because we didn't know mechanistically what was driving them before. But, uh, but I think most of it won't be. Most of it will just be prettier, more high-resolution pictures of what's in the cells. But I think, like most things, uh, you know, technology gives you a lens to peer into biology, and you, all, every single time we've done that technologically, we found new biology, new fundamental biology. And which usually then translates to eventually, you know, better understanding of disease and then eventually therapies as well.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you think that single cell technologies, like pure single cell technologies like chromium, uh, is essentially going to interplay with these spatial omics? Do you think they're going to play hand in hand or do you think they're going to be competing with each other?
1: I think, um, You know, right now I think the spatial technologies are still laborious and slow relative to running eight or 16 single cell experiments at a time, getting, you know, a million cells back and having extreme high resolution data. I think there's still going to be a good, you know, long road where single cell is going to be becoming more the default for basic functional genomics. But once the platforms get faster and and the data analytics get improved and more integrated, I think eventually most of it will switch to spatial, but but not all of it, just because At some level, uh, tissues can be degraded or you might not have enough of them. Or sometimes, you know, it's it's also still much more expensive. I mean, both platforms and tools are expensive, but they give you amazing data, so people are willing to pay it. But I think uh, the single cell is coming down in price, at least per cell, Uh, not necessarily Mm -hmm. per experiment. Uh, But the spatial is still more expensive, especially, you know, when you suddenly have – the spatial technology is not too expensive, but if you want to have 40 or 80 or 150 antibodies you're profiling at the same time, you know, then the antibodies become more expensive, right? So I think mm-hmm. there's a strange cost structures that have not been resolved yet for spatial that I think they'll eventually will come down, but right now it's going to be more expensive. So, uh, but if I had to place my bat long-term, uh, I'd put it on spatial once it gets high throughput and cheaper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and, so, and that they'll, they'll still always be single cell, but I think it'll eventually become a minority, but not soon, five years yeah. from now, four, four or five years from now. It's just going to take a while, I think for it to get, or maybe three, three at minimum. Okay.
0: And uh, can you tell us which one of the technologies you're most excited to use in your own lab? I mean, obviously, there is, you know, the, the, the Geomex, the NanoString, the 10X, uh, you know, VisGen. It seems like there is like a company at some point that came out like every couple of weeks, right? <laughs> it's just one after, <laughs> one after another. So is there one in particular that I know you like everybody to win? Uh, one in particular <laughs> that, you, that you're particularly excited to bring into your lab or that, that you've been using and been really happy with?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we've been, uh, 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 knowing also that I'm, I'm fully conflicted with almost every company that's on the market. So, uh, <laughs> take, take, take this with a grain of salt. I have been in 20 conflicts of interest. But the, but even just on the, on the merits alone, I, I think, you know, I think some of the, the read core uh, technology that was just purchased by Tenex and then also the spatial molecular imager from Nanostring. I'm really excited about both of them because they give you just this extraordinary resolution. Uh, that you know, I think we're going to find a lot of fundamental new biology. I, I'm very excited because it's the it's the most measures of transcripts at the highest resolution. Uh, again, it's slow right now, but I I think, I think um, you know we're for example, we were just planning this mission for some uh, future of spaceflight uh, and also some other COVID samples. And for both of them, I was looking at the SMI platform to say, well, this looks like it's uh, going forward going to be the way to get a lot of of deep rich data on these tissues. And if you're looking for you know the best answer for what happened to a tissue, what happened when a disease became resistant to a therapy, or what happened to cells uh, when they got into space, you know, I want to have the highest resolution, so I've been looking a, a bit at the SMI, but um, but it's because I've seen it a lot, I know a lot of the nanostring people, uh, I've been, you know, hearing a lot about it, so it's it's what's, it's what's in my ear, uh, especially these days, yeah.
0: Got it. Is there, and I know the two of us, like, talked about this in the past, but maybe uh, if you could comment on what are some of the results that you've got out of this platform that you could not have gotten any other way. Like, can you comment on, on in what, in what respect is the technology really enabling and and, and that you couldn't do it using, you know, IFC fish or, you know, just
1: up single cell? I think so. we just had, we have a preprint on this and this has been more from COVID autopsy work we've done where we were using the Hyperion, the Fluidigm system the Hyperion, as well as the Nanostring Geomix. And in both these platforms, you know, what I like is not that we can see things that go up and down for genes or proteins. You can do that anyway. You can grind up the cells. You can do it with single cell. You can do it with even just IHC. But what we could actually start to see was this exquisite cell deconvolution. What cells are where in a tissue? And then how are they, what are they next to? Which again, you could do a little bit of that with IHC, but then we could get, you know, not just two or three markers, but thousands of markers. So we knew very specific cell subtypes and who they were, what neighborhoods they were essentially in inside of a tissue. So we could see in COVID patients, for example, Basically, a deconstruction of cells that are normally together where, you know, natural killer cells and B cells suddenly start be, being near each other where they weren't before. Or we're seeing, you know, neutrophils uh, suddenly, you know, engaging and like invading into a space uh, where they didn't normally within the lung. And so in some of that, you can just see, but then you can see not just other you know, differences, but then exactly which cell type, which sort of normal cell architecture and tissue architecture has been changed. And so, you know, again, you can kind of see with IHG, you see there's some differences here, there's more of it here, less of it there, but you don't often know, you, you just know more or less, or you might know a few cell types, but you don't know simultaneously dozens and dozens of cell types and where they've all gone within the same tissue. So we can see tissue disruption uh, in situ, which you just really couldn't do before, like in the actual state of, of where the disruptions is occurring. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, uh, you know, eventually that that will... You know, there's been some spatial papers that have started to show that 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 organizational structure of tissues uh, and how cells are arranged may have some prognostic values, which is what most of what IHC does. So I think uh, that's just beginning, but I think we'll start to see more of that. And, and it's going to be, and it, that has to be the answer. It can't be we saw things go like, be higher or lower for genes or proteins. Like if you want that, just do RNA seq or do something, do something much cheaper and simpler. It has to be a question of what was the organization of the tissue, what was the structure, what was the cell subtype, and what it was doing with some other cell. I think.
0: In terms of clinical application, do you think it's going to be in oncology where it can have like the most immediate impact? Mm-hmm. This special omics platform, for looking at the tumor microenvironments or because like in the case of COVID, in the case of COVID, it's probably not really practical, right, to be doing a yes, lot of biopsy.
1: Yes, co- COVID will hopefully go away. I, I think I think you're right that oncology, like with most other technologies, it will really be deployed there first. Uh, that'll be the I think the first spot, and be because there you can it could complement existing assays, you can potentially replace some of them, you can get higher resolution. Uh, the, oncology is a huge market, but also infectious disease, uh, you know, also might be a place where I think we'd see it start to pick up because you can make probes for, you know, anything you want, any protein of any or any gene in any organism. So I think eventually we'll start to see it be used there too.
0: All right. This was fun. Thank you very much. And can you give us the name of the book one more time and where people can find it?
1: Well, a pleasure to be here. And it was The, the Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds. And you can find it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or anywhere books are sold.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation and thanks to Chris for joining us. This podcast was produced for Decibio by Anthony De Benedetti with music by Javier Suarez. If you'd like to get in touch with us, visit our website at www.desiBio.com.